You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The real question we should be asking ourselves is not like, how do we stand up entirely new bureaucratic systems, um, but how can we make what we have a lot more effective? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, Ben looks at the shift to more secure messaging apps and the fallout of Parler going offline. I've got the story of the FTC cracking down on misuse of facial recognition software. And later in the show, my conversation with Andrew Burt from the Yale Information Society Project. He's going to be telling us about the Digital Future White Paper series, and they just released their first white paper. It's titled Nowhere to Hide, Data, Cyberspace, and the Dangers of the Real World. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, let's uh, dig into some stories this week. What do you have for us? So my story comes from the Washington Post, written in their technology section by Garrett DeVink and Ellen Nakashima. The story is about how right-wing protesters, supporters of President Trump, have been forced to move to encrypted applications because all of their other favorite applications have been shut down or significantly curtailed. So not only have Facebook and Twitter tried to cut down on extremists, they've deleted a lot of accounts. Obviously, uh, Facebook temporarily banned President Trump and Twitter permanently suspended his account. Uh, But even an application like Parler at least temporarily went offline. So Parler is a microblogging alternative uh, to Twitter that's very popular uh, among right-wing groups. And it went offline because Amazon Web Hosting Service decided not to support it anymore. And it right. was also taken out of uh, the Apple Store and Google Play. Luckily for these groups and for these individuals, there are a bunch of uh, encrypted messaging applications that have filled the void. So the couple that they mention in this article are Telegram. Obviously, that's based in Dubai. It's long been very popular uh, as an encrypted messaging application among people who would rather keep their conversations underground, so to speak. Mm. And other services like MeWe, which is uh, another social media application that's been very popular among extremists. So this presents uh, a number of problems. These applications have surged in popularity. They are running up the charts on both the Apple App Store and Google Play, you know, going from the 10,000s into the top 15 applications downloaded. So there's mm-hmm. concern there that people who we want to be monitoring are are going off the grid. When people are using mainstream American social media applications, 
you know, there are ways for our government and law enforcement to get access via subpoena. Sometimes people leave information public facing. Law enforcement can get lucky. Uh, but law enforcement generally knows how to deal with those types of applications. With things like Signal and Telegram and MeWe, that means that the users are largely going dark and are evading the watchful eye of law enforcement. And one of the reasons that's so concerning is there's been a lot of chatter on these applications about future insurrectionists attacks. And it's been very difficult for law enforcement to break through these encrypted applications, you know, not just because of their security features, but also because the leaders of these companies, I think, are less beholden to political pressure from national leaders uh, to moderate their own content and make user data more available. So it's proving mm. to be a major, a major challenge for law enforcement. Let me ask you this. Aren't we kind of uh, wanting to have our cake and eat it too? Because uh, the conversations that you and I typically have about apps like Signal and Telegram, you know, these end-to-end -end encrypted apps that are built around privacy uh -huh. and security is that aren't they a great thing for all the people we like? Uh, I know. know. The, the folks who are, it's a good thing for, for free speech mm, and people privacy, to be able to communicate. And, yeah. And keep the government out of their private business. But uh, suddenly, you know, we're on the other side of this now with uh, folks who are, you know, may have had something to do with the, the riot at the Capitol, you know, folks who are aligning with that. And uh, we see it's really a bright light on the other side of this encryption argument, isn't it? That's why this issue is so incredibly complicated. I mean, I try and catch myself. I start thinking, well, you know, maybe former Attorney General William Barr was right that we should prioritize getting a backdoor into these encrypted applications. And I'm like, <laughs> no, this isn't who you are, Ben. You know? <laughs> and I don't think you should judge an application or any policy, for that matter, by its most egregious, disfavored users. You know, so I think we should think twice before we propose rash policy changes in response to this dilemma, because we do want to support the right of people to have private end-to-end -end encrypted conversations on these applications that does comport with our values. One thing that makes this different is people are using these applications to sow insurrectionist violence. So there is always a line somewhere. Um, right. And even these applications, uh, you know, when they were contacted by the Washington Post, have tried to claim they've done their best to moderate content. They took down 1,000 posts. At least that's what Telegram had said. 3,000 public groups in January alone that were inciting violence, although they said that fewer than 6% of those were in the United States. So even the, these applications themselves that want to sell themselves on, you know, protecting your your privacy, your conversations, I think really do draw the line at having their platform be the one where people are planning insurrectionist violence. Uh, but you're right, we mm. can't have our cake and eat it too. There are always trade-offs here. The trade-off here is, would we potentially want to give up all of the benefits of private messaging services, and there are many benefits, just for our short-term goal of protecting ourselves through this very tumultuous time? And honestly, Dave, there's not an easy answer to that question. Yeah. I mean, I, I try to, to think about something that I think everyone is in broad agreement is is a bad thing. You know, something like child pornography, that, that sort of thing, that these platforms can be used for those sorts of things. The people who want to do those things can use these end-to-end -end encrypted apps in, in service of, of those crimes that they're committing. There's not a whole lot that the, the app 
developers can do about that? Because as you sort of say, I mean, as a side effect of how these apps work, they don't have a view into what's going on on their platforms. But we all say, well, you know, as you say, we, we can't judge it by the, the most extreme uses of it. To me, this is just the developing reality that it makes sense. As you shut down the, the places in the public eye where folks can communicate, and people learn their lesson, right? Yes. Like the, the folks who want to do these things are part of the reason they're getting so easily tracked down and arrested. I'm, I'm thinking specifically of the the Capitol riot is because of all the things they posted publicly. Right. So look where it I makes am. sense. Yeah. Right. It, it make, look, here's my GPS location. It makes sense that the natural way of things would be that they would say, ooh, we've got to do better than that. <laughs> and yes. they would move <laughs> to a different platform. Yes, that is a problem for law enforcement. And uh, what, what an interesting natural evolution of things. Is that a, a way to say it? Yeah. You know, one thing I keep thinking about, and you know, I always try and find my analogies in the non-digital world. But mm. I'm sure there was some point in history where people were planning insurrection through the U.S. mail. People were sending each other letters saying, you know, here's what I think we should do. This is how we should, you know, we can topple the, the government, commit violence, so unrest. And can you imagine if in, you know, response to that, the government decided that they were going to open all of our letters before we saw them? A lot of us would find that offensive, you know, obviously, there's no perfect comparison. There are a lot of differences. But I think that's just something that, that's important to remember. But again, it's not an easy question. Somebody asked me, would you do whatever is humanly possible to stop insurrectionist violence uh, and, you know, to prevent more law enforcement officers, innocent people from getting killed? <sighs> you know, you'd want to say yes, but these are just not, not easy questions. Right. That's that old ticking time bomb issue, right? I don't know. I don't want to say that old chestnut, but, you know, that's often brought up when you have these conversations. You know, what if the what if the bomb is ticking and, and you have to do something extreme to stop the bomb from ticking? Right. And uh, I to don't know. To be honest, the bomb is, is very rarely ticking. And that's why I never like that as a hypothetical. I mean, there's just mm. not that many scenarios where that happens. I kind of feel like this is maybe one where the metaphorical bomb is sort of ticking. And, you know, there have been over the last couple of weeks, very specific threats uh, of potentially violent uh, armed insurrectionists going to the U.S. Capitol, going to state capitals. So it's not theoretical. I mean, it's it's real. Um, right. And I just it's hard for me to try and figure out where to draw the line, whether you, you can take broad strokes to protect the public against these encrypted applications or whether that would be overbroad and uh, would violate our, our right to privacy. So it's just it's just a very difficult question. I think, you know, this article didn't really express a view on, on that. It was more just kind of summarizing what's happening, which is that these applications have skyrocketed in popularity, but it just kind of gets you thinking about that dilemma. Yeah. We'll have a link to that Washington Post article in the show notes. My story this week actually comes uh, from the folks over at uh, the law firm Cooley. We've had some of their fine attorneys as guests on our show here. They sent out an alert that caught my eye, and it's titled, FTC requires app developer to obtain user's express consent for use of facial recognition. Uh, of course, facial recognition is something that comes up regularly uh, with us here. And this is really an interesting uh, outline of what the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, has been actively doing when it comes to enforcing 
facial recognition, but also kind of laying out where they stand and where things may be going with this. So this centers around uh, a company called Everalbum. I would say Ever, Ever, Ever Album. Ever, my, Ever Album. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. I just, I've yes, never yes, heard of it either. Is, so that is cor- okay. Yeah, I think that is the correct way to say it. I did. I just yeah, that's right. Because they are a photo storage app, and uh, the app is called Ever. So this is a place where you would store your photos. Well, this photo app had a facial recognition functionality built into it. And according to the FTC's allegations, this company misstated what they were doing with facial recognition. They were leading their, their, their customers to believe that if they opted out of facial recognition, that their photos would not be subject to facial recognition when, in fact, they were. Mm-hmm. For, um, for several this, years. For several years. Uh, and also that if uh, someone had deleted their photos, that they would be taken out of the facial recognition pool, that they, they wouldn't be used for uh, training the facial recognition software and so on. And it sounds like this company was doing the common things that folks do when they're training these facial recognition software programs, whereas you you load as many photos as you can into it and you cross-reference that with publicly available photos uh, so, for example, if, if, I were, if I were using this app and I loaded up a bunch of photos and I tagged them as being me, they may take all those pictures they have of me and then go out on the general web and do a Google search on my name and look right. for more photos of me and cross-reference those and use those to train their system. Well, they had been telling their clients that if you opted out or if you deleted your photos that they weren't going to be using your photos and turns out they actually were. So the FTC took issue with this, and um, they have a proposed order here, uh, which uh, the commissioners of the FTC voted unanimously to accept. There's an interesting list of requirements here. First of all, they want them to provide notice and obtain affirmative express consent before using biometric information in connection with facial recognition technology. That's pretty straightforward. Alert people and make sure it's okay with them. The second thing is they want them to delete or destroy the photos and videos of deactivated accounts. All right, makes sense. Fair enough. Uh, This one is interesting. The third one is delete or destroy models or algorithms that Ever Album developed in whole or in part using biometric information that the Ever app collected from its users. That was the most fascinating to me. Yeah, to me, this is like going to someone and saying, I need you to remove the sugar from that cake you just baked. Yes. Right? (laughs) You kind of have to drown the baby with the bathwater there. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me, just speaking from a legal perspective, of the fruit of the poisonous tree. In the legal world, if there was one illegal act from law enforcement, everything that follows from that is considered fruit of the poisonous tree and therefore inadmissible in court. That kind of seems like what's going on here is if you created any sort of algorithm based on photos that were improperly stored, then you have to destroy those algorithms. Obviously, that's going to be incredibly burdensome for this company. They've probably been building these algorithms for years. But, you know, the alternative for them is that they would probably have gone out of business. So I I would guess that's why they agreed to this settlement. Yeah. It seems to me like they'd have to start from scratch, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. 
I guess it's easier to build something the second time than the first time, but still. <laughs> it's a rather drastic action, and it shows that the FTC is really taking facial recognition seriously, uh, which, right. I, which I think is a good thing. One thing that this article brings up, which I think is something we're, we're going to have to look out for, is now the litigation floodgates are about to open. Because now that we have hmm. this settlement, this is going to uh, apply to all tech platforms, all applications, any sort of web-based service that collects uh, faces and does and uses facial recognition software, develops facial recognition algorithms. So this sort of puts other companies on notice that, A, you're going to have to change your terms of service and you're going to have to make sure that your users are able to give express consent to the use of their photos to contribute to these algorithms. And B, if you don't do that, you better hire a, a law firm. Perhaps Cooley uh, could uh, use this as an advertisement. <laughs> right, right. I, I suspect that's partially what this alert is intended to be. Yeah, but get ready for the follow-on litigation. And that seems to be uh, what's happening here. You know, I think this is a, it's really good that the FTC and their Consumer Protection Bureau is focusing on this, um, focusing on the misuse of facial recognition. And I think this is just the first salvo and what will largely be, you know, probably years of, of follow-on litigation about this. There's something in here they mention uh, I wanted your your take on. They mention a coming uh, Supreme Court decision about potentially providing statutory authority to the FTC. Do you, do you have any insights of what's going on there? Yeah, so this case, which was argued basically last week, concerns whether Section 13B of the Federal Trade Commission Act, so the statute that authorized the Federal Trade Commission, can issue injunctions demanding monetary relief, such as restitution, if individuals have been wronged. So depending on the outcome of that case, the FTC potentially could demand restitution, monetary restitution or damages to the users of this application whose photos were improperly stored. Hmm. Um, so I think people who were using this app, using Ever Album, would want to pay attention to this FTC case because they might have a cause of action where they could obtain monetary damages. I didn't pay attention to the oral argument, so I don't really have an indication on how this case is going to be decided. Uh, mm -hmm. But it was just argued in the past week. Uh, so it's a case that's going to be decided over the next several months. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see how much is going on in the facial recognition space. You know, we've got we've got different states that have different standards here and people get caught up in those things. Illinois, for example, has a, a very stringent set of rules when it comes to biometrics. So if you're I suppose if you're doing business coast to coast, you, you need to uh, pay attention to those individual state uh, requirements, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just like how we always talk about companies have to comply with the most stringent state regulations because, you know, you don't want to adopt different business practices for all 50 states. So it ends up being sort of a race to the top. And Illinois is at the top uh, as it relates to facial recognition. And kudos to them for being out in front on this issue. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have a link to uh, this post in the show notes. Uh, interesting read. It really lays everything out here, has some uh, recommendations uh, for companies. So uh, appreciative to the folks over at Cooley for putting all this in plain language that uh, just about anybody can understand. All right. Well, those are our stories for this week. Of course, we would love to hear from you. We have a call-in number. It's 410-618-3720. You can call and leave us a message and we may use it on the air. You can also send us email to caveat at thecyberwire.com.
And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Ben, I recently uh, had a conversation with Andrew Burt. He's from the Yale Information Society Project, and they have a Digital Future White Paper series. They just published their first white paper. It's titled Nowhere to Hide, Data, Cyberspace, and the Dangers of the Digital World. Here's my conversation with Andrew Burt. I have been working at the intersection of law, technology, and risk for quite some time, first in the FBI Cyber Division, then at Amuta. Um, which came out of the intelligence community and and, and now at, at bnh.ai, this boutique law firm focused on AI. And throughout all of my experience, it's just become clear that we as policymakers, as lawyers, as consumers, as technologists, do not effectively manage risk in cyberspace, period. We see it every day, headlines and breaches, new privacy laws, new laws focused on AI, um, it just feels like we are drowning in a sea of digital technologies and we don't really know what to grab, how we need to help ourselves. And so this essay is really just kind of a culmination of, of years of working on some of these issues and thinking about these issues um, and basically just trying to describe the issues as I see it, which is not to be a pessimist, but things are pretty bad. We really, I think, have lost sight of what it is we are trying to protect when we talk about things like privacy and security and responsible AI. Yeah, you know, as you say, not to be a pessimist, but um, you know, the first several sections of your white paper here are, are nowhere to hide, privacy is dead, trust is dead, and you're not who you think you are. Not starting off with a rosy uh, summary of where things stand. Yeah, no, it's not. It is. It is not rosy. And some of the reactions so far, folks seem seem to enjoy the white paper, but the reactions are kind of like this is very scary. And and I, hmm. I don't think I wrote this to scare people. Um, I think I, I wrote this to honestly just try to honestly describe my thoughts and my reactions to, to what's going on. And I think despite that kind of serving of, of just blunt kind of candor and an assessment of where things stand regarding our privacy and our security, uh, which in my view, I, I think is accurate, I am optimistic. You know, I, I do close out this, this white paper by saying there are many things we can do to fix these issues. So it's not it's not all doom and gloom. I think I say somewhere in the paper that the sky may seem like it is falling, um, but it need not fall as fast or land as hard. Um, and so I think the real takeaway is that none of this is fated to happen. It is not a foregone conclusion that privacy, you know, really ends up being something meaningless that, you know, our grandparents used to enjoy and that, you know, the users of social media and, and denizens of the internet just kind of look back at at this idea of privacy kind of laughingly as, as something that's arcane. This is not something that's fated to happen. And so I think, um, I, think there, I think there's a good deal of optimism here in the sense that like, we have a choice. We can actually choose to adopt digital technologies 
responsibly um, to slow down our adoption so that we can actually understand the complexity of the digital world. Um, but I think, you know, that being said, if the future looks like the past, it's not going to be a particularly great future in, in terms of, of our ability to protect all the data that we generate. Well, uh, t- take me through your premise here. I mean, if privacy and, and trust are indeed dead, what leads you to that conclusion? I'll start with privacy. And, and basically, privacy is a very kind of ambiguous concept that has shifted over the decades. But I, I kind of anchor my definition of privacy in the 1890, the very seminal, famous Law Review article by future Justice Brandeis and another attorney that really kind of set the definition for privacy as, as the right to be let alone. And so if we think about what this means, the right to be left alone in our kind of modern era where everything we do generates data and data at large volumes generates insights that we can't understand that are often sensitive and and reflect about who we are, there's really no other conclusion than to state, I think, pretty bluntly, again, that privacy as we've known it, privacy as, as we've conceived of it, is no longer. The ways that we can be identified, the ways deep and sensitive insights about us can be inferred from from the data we generate, just keeps growing. I cite in the white paper um, an incident that happened almost 10 years ago where Target very famously was able to predict that a teenager was pregnant based on her shopping patterns Mm. uh, before her family even knew. And that was a decade ago. You know, that was just a few years after the adoption of the iPhone. That was not taking into account all the data that we now generate on a daily basis. And it wasn't also even taking into account the fact that so many of us now live almost our entire lives online as a result of the pandemic. On privacy kind of specifically, this idea that we can protect sensitive information about us, this idea that we can actually exert some control over what other people are able to learn is becoming more and more meaningless directly in relation to all the data we keep generating. So the more digital devices we have, the more connected we are, the more data we generate, the harder it's going to be to protect what we think about as privacy. Do you suppose there's a a certain sense of resignation out there where people sort of throw their hands up and they say, well, I want to be part of this digital world and this is just part of what goes with that? Certainly, but I don't think that's the whole story because if you look at polls and you look at just in general, the way the public in the U.S. and around the world views privacy, this is a really important issue. In fact, it's one of the, the few issues right now that actually has bipartisan support, um, mm. which is almost, it's almost crazy to think that there's any issue that could kind of unite uh, <laughs> lawmakers on both sides of the aisle, but, but privacy is one of them. So I, I think there certainly is some resignation, but I think the broader issue is I think it's just about incentive structures. And right now, the incentive structures related to almost all digital technology just overvalue short-term thinking. And so it's one of the reasons why you know, over time, it becomes incredibly difficult to, to understand, little less manage IT environments in a corporate setting, in a home setting, as all of these choices add up as they accumulate and accrete, it becomes very hard to understand exactly what it is that's happening. And so when we're focused on what's the next app I'm going to download, what's the next cell phone I'm going to buy, what's the ne- next IoT you know, device I'm going to connect to my home, home network, it just becomes very hard to step back and think about the bigger picture. This is certainly something that I don't think it's actually rocket science in the white paper. Um, I outline a couple of very concrete things that um, I think we can do 
to help us make sense of our environment. And again, I mean, this is totally possible. This is not a foregone conclusion that we are just unable to protect our data. And I would also just say, one of the, the, the pretty interesting feedback um, I've been getting, and frankly, I've been getting this ever since I, I left the FBI, mm. where people come up to me and they say, you know, what do you think about the latest hack? And kind of, it's almost, you know, every, let's say every two to three weeks it happens. And there's always kind of a tone that like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. You know, right. what do you think about this? Um, it's, and it's kind of, we're just watching, you know, the tide rising and every single time it rises, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's higher than before. I think one of the interesting perspectives uh, or I don't know, one of the takeaways of a lot of those conversations is at the beginning, it comes off as pessimistic because I kind of say, of course, this is a real issue. And we as a society, we as a government, um, globally, we're just not doing enough to address this. But on the other hand, it is not that complicated to fix. We have fixed far more complex issues as a society. So again, I think what it really, the, the real issue is, is one of just aligning incentives so that the folks who are selling uh, digital technologies have the same incentives as the folks who are buying and using, and and the folks who are using it also have a good understanding of of what the risks they're actually kind of adopting as they adopt all these technologies. Well, I mean, let's let's go through some of the specifics together. I mean, what are some of the things that you consider to be achievable here? I'm a lawyer by training, so a lot of these are actually kind of some of them are technological, but a lot of them just kind of start with. What should laws do? How can laws create the right incentives? Um, and so one of them that I cite, um, well, well uh, there are a couple, um, uh, and I don't know how, how deep we want to get, but, but one of them that I'll just say is I talk about how laws should incentivize the use of things like privacy-enhancing technologies. And so these are actual uh, technologies or techniques that can help obfuscate data, that can help increase the level of uh, security and privacy associated with data use. And right now, you know, there's a wonderful UN report on privacy-enhancing technologies that, that I believe I cite in the paper. Um, but right now, they're kind of like, they're thought of as quirky and interesting. You know, the tech giants, Microsoft, Apple, Google, use things like differential privacy, um, but they're not yet widespread. Um, and so one of the, the, the suggestions um, is to have policymakers actually incentivize the use of privacy-enhancing technologies by saying things like, if you're using a technique like differential privacy or K-anonymization or federated learning and there is a breach or there is some type of failure, liability is mitigated. There will be less, li- there'll be less liability. What we will incur on you, lower fines. And so just the very act of doing that is going to incentivize organizations to adopt technologies that actually prioritize um, privacy and security. And also, um, I think it'll have that, the added benefit of reducing insurance rates, which will further incentivize the adoption. And these are basically like the way that I think of these these privacy-enhancing technologies as kind of technical safeguards, technical guardrails built into the very fabric of of our software that can help to minimize um, some of the risks that are are, are frankly just inevitable. Um, I'm happy to keep talking about some of the suggestions, but I I don't know how deep we want to go into the weeds here. You know, there's there's something that strikes me here that it seems to me there's a kind of a fundamental disproportionality here. And and I think of the example of if I'm just going around, you know, uh, checking out uh, websites, uh, you know, news websites and so on. And I have an ad blocker on because I don't want all my information tracked. And, you know, the, the website will pop up and they'll say, hey, we notice you're using an ad blocker. You know, please let us show our ads. And the thing is, like... I don't have a problem with them showing me ads. I, that 
that's fine. That, you know, I understand that's a great part of commerce. What, what, what bugs me is all of the tracking that goes along with it. And we seem to be, in many cases, in this all or nothing sort of thing. There's, there's really no practical way for me to say, sure, show me your ads, but don't track me. You know, and, and you know, one of the points you make in your white paper here is um, we can't consent to what we don't understand. And I think we're, we're in this world with these ridiculous EULAs that nobody reads, nobody understands. And so from the consumer point of view, I wonder, again, you know, that, that point about that I made about throwing your hands up, how is a, an individual supposed to try to get control of these sorts of things? Yeah, I mean, this is a collective issue. This is not something that we can solve on our own. This is a political issue. Um, mm. And so uh, we can't, we just can't. And, and indeed, as AI is adopted more and more, the entire value of, of things like AI, of techniques like AI and machine learning, is that they will extract from data insights that we can't predict. And in some cases, insights we can't understand. So the very concept that you know, I as a consumer am going to generate data and I'm going to be able to understand the value of that data, you know, as I'm generating it or frankly ever is just ridiculous. It is not aligned to the current reality of, of, of what it actually means to generate data hmm. and what it actually means for organizations to extract value out of that. So the idea of consent, the idea of all of these very kind of detailed privacy policies we're supposed to understand is just not practical. And so um, one of the things I, I say in the white paper is that we need to move on. We need to, to come to a, a better way of protecting all the data we generate without actually just kind of delegating the decision to users that are just not equipped to understand the, the value of the data that they're actually handing over. What about uh, this notion, you know, Ben and I have, have batted around this idea of coming at this similarly to a, a public health uh, approach, which is that, you know, for example, do, do we need something equivalent to the FDA for social media algorithms? You know, before you turn loose this algorithm on the general public, you must prove that it first will do no harm. You know, in the, in the same way that a prescription medication, you know, has to be tested and vetted, you know, before it's it's turned loose. I mean, is, is there anything in your mind to the, to that approach? Is there is there anything there? I would make two points. The first is that a lot of the discussion about, you know, the current state of privacy um, and data protection, it always kind of gravitates towards social media. I would just, the first point I would make is this is about software writ large. This is about like how it is that we interact with software systems and the digital world. Um, mm. So certainly social media plays a huge part, but, but I think it's much broader. Like when I'm thinking of these issues, I'm also thinking of smart doorknobs and smart toasters and, mm. you know, so that'd be my first point. My second point is I've seen a lot of this, this idea that like we have a problem, let's create a new government agency solely focused on it to, to fix it. I get why folks make that argument, but it doesn't sit well with me. In fact, um, as early as, as I think it was the early 1970s, some senators were actually suggesting like a federal department of computers. Hmm. Um, and um, we didn't, of course, stand up something like that. And I think, you know, we have a huge amount of innovation to show for it. So I personally much prefer a regulatory approach that's much more rooted in, in the U.S., which is basically you let the sectors, the FDA for, for things that are related to medicine or, you know, the National Highway uh, Traffic and Safety Administration for things related to, to, to automotive vehicles. Um, I much pr prefer that type of framework um, where there are multiple regulators playing in the same space just because I think it, it, it can get a little bit more, more granular and, and, and more effective. 
so I, I'm not someone who supports the idea of like, let's stand up an entirely new government agency. And, and, and one kind of additional point I would make is we kind of already have that agency with the, the FTC. Mm. Um, I think the FTC and, and some supporters and, and folks on Capitol Hill um, have been floating around ideas that would give the FTC increased authority um, over many of these issues. So I, I'm someone who wants our, our bureaucracy to be as efficient as, as possible. Again, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, trying mm-hmm. to, I'm trying not to be too pessimistic. That's a very optimistic thing to say, I think, in this day and age. Yeah. And so I think the real question we should be asking ourselves is not like, how do we stand up entirely new bureaucratic systems, um, but how can we make what we have a lot more effective? And I think as a testament to the fact um, that we don't need a new uh, entirely new new government agency. Like there is just so much more we can do. And again, I, I make some of those recommendations in the white paper. Do you suppose that that there is political will to see something like this through? I mean, as you and I are, are recording this, we're we're uh, heading into a new administration in Washington. Do you suppose this is something that could bubble up to the top and actually see real action? Yeah, a hundred percent. I would be very, very surprised if by the end of the, the the next administration there wasn't some type of of major legislation dealing with these issues. My only fear is that it'll get it wrong. Um, I think it's very easy, kind of in the modern, very I don't know. Um, uh, I was going to say polarized, but that it doesn't even do it. But in the modern political era, it's very easy to reduce kind of complex issues to statements that don't do the actual issues justice. And so my concern, so, so I'm very confident something is going to pass. My concern is it's going to be like, let's break up Google, let's break up Facebook, let's take big, bold, you know, actions that, that look good in the headlines. And then we're still going to be left with smart doorknobs that, you know, don't, um, uh, whose software systems can't update um, and can therefore just kind of like sit connected to the internet and create vulnerabilities that many of us are not even aware of. So I think my major, the major thing that I worry about is just kind of the quality of software um, and the complexity of, of, of this kind of really, really rapidly expanding digital environment. And if there are no repercussions for creating software that has lots of vulnerabilities, and if we have no real incentives to tamp down that complexity and understand it, it almost doesn't matter what we do to you know the, the, the big tech companies, we're still gonna have issues protecting our data. All right, Ben, what do you think? In some ways, it's very dark. I mean, he's painting a picture of a present and a future where we've permanently lost our sense of privacy. And, you know, I think that's something that most people just don't recognize or realize, which is good that he's doing this series of white papers. I think the first step in addressing these problems is realizing that they exist, is acknowledging that in our pursuit of enhanced digital technology that's improved all of our lives, we have given up any last semblance of personal privacy. There are security cameras everywhere. There's facial recognition. There's, you know, cell site location information. You know, when you put all of those things together, it's not the way it was 50 years ago where you could really rely on being in your own home and being private from the outside world. So in that sense, you know, it's sort of dark, but I think he did give some indication as to what policy changes we can make that would cut against this loss of privacy. And so much of it has to do with user consent. Um, mm. Just so that, you know, people who sign these EULAs can be aware of what they're actually signing. Um, yeah. So I thought it was a really interesting conversation. 
Yeah, thanks. You know, it strikes me that we've kind of, as you say, over the past 40, 50 years or so, it's been this slow, you know, there's that that analogy of boiling the frog, you know, where the the, the temperature just slowly comes up. Slowly boils. Right, right. The frog doesn't jump out of the uh, the boiling water because it's not like you toss him in and he jumps out. No, you bring the temperature up slowly. And I think uh, when it comes to chipping away at a lot of these privacy things that we had just come to expect as part of uh, citizenry, all these technologies have chipped away at the edges of them. And now we find ourselves going, wait, hold on, wait a yeah, minute. What did I give up? <laughs> yes. Right, yeah, absolutely. Right. It's not like there realizing. was one day where there was a decree from up high, you know, handed down on tablets saying you no longer have privacy. I mean, it's been a, right. a slow and steady process as right. new forms of technology have been introduced. And as we mentioned a million times, it's taken a very long time for the court system to catch up with those technologies. Yeah, it strikes me too how it's been so often been sort of unintended consequences where it's like, hey, good news, your phone has GPS in it. Oh, that's great. You yeah. know, I can I can use this app to to help me navigate my car or you know f- find my way to the the nearest uh, taco truck or something. Yeah. But the flip side is also Panera <laughs> knows where I am at all times. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. exactly, exactly. All right. Well, our thanks to uh, Andrew Burt for joining us. Uh, Again, we'll have a link to their work to that white paper in the show notes. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership, while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producers are Kelsey Bond and Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.